Alright, so I'm going to continue through Romans 9 in this video. If you haven't seen the uh, first part of the Romans 9 uh, video series that we're doing, you might want to go back and listen to that. Uh, but we're going to continue through and my conviction, my reasoning for doing this, I want to state again up front, is um, has nothing to do with a uh, anti-Calvinist uh, bent or that I'm wanting to lash out at anybody or, or my my desire my goal my hope for this is to be loving and and it's just my conviction that Romans 9 and the rest of scripture just does not teach or communicate a Calvinistic uh, understanding of God and his sovereignty and in his way of dealing with people and his way of saving people it's just my firm conviction that uh, from the understanding I've gotten from the scriptures, that, the, that that is just not what the Bible teaches. And so, um, again, I, I believe that the most prominent teachers are teaching Calvinism. And so my hope is just to offer out another, uh, another view of the scriptures, another take on it, and what I believe is a, a, a more accurate understanding. And so just kind of offering out just any insights or understanding God might have given me um, around this topic, I just want to offer that out. And um, he takes his word and he sends it out and he, he accomplishes his own purpose. So so I want to get into Romans 9 again. Um, and last time we covered the first about five verses. And, and what we're doing, a lot of what I want to do is to parallel Romans 9 to mainly Galatians, also a few other scriptures, um, but mainly Galatians, and, and parallel it, compare it, contrast it, and show uh, that the same argument Paul is making, the case he's making in Galatians, we had all agree that, that, that what his point is in Galatians is to make a case for faith over works. And he's trying to convince the Galatians, you cannot revert to works. You must approach God on the basis of faith. Um, and that's the only way you can approach him. And it's the same argument I believe he's making in Romans 9. The, the same, um, it, it's a very similar argument, at least, that he's making. And in, in Galatians, many of the analogies he brings up and the, the uh, metaphors that he brings up, he uses those same metaphors and analogies in Romans 9. And I think that's very interesting and should be very revealing to us about what his point is, what he's trying to get at. And, and what I conclude and what I'm trying to get across is that his point is not to uh, to to promote a Calvinistic understanding of, of God's sovereignty that that God determined uh, before people were born He determined the individual destiny of every individual whether to hell or to salvation. Um, that's just something. Again, I will say I don't I don't see how you can tr just look at the text and get that out of there. You would have to insert that in or or bring it in from somewhere else. Um, but to just take what what the scriptures are saying, especially again when you compare it to Galatians, I think the clear argument that Paul is making is that he's he's making a case again for faith that God's sovereign decision is that He's chosen faith in Christ as the only way of salvation, and he's rejected works. Um, and, and in Galatians, he'll say, you know, we talked about last time, that those who approach Christ on the basis of works, they're cursed and separated from him. Let's go ahead and verse 6 of Romans 9. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So again, Paul is answering the question, okay, if the Jews, the Israelites, are, the majority of them are now accursed and separated from Christ, 
well, what about all these promises God made to Israel? What about, what about you know, God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, and now you're saying we're accursed and cut off from Christ, we're, we're not going to get the promises? And so they're like, what, what the heck, what's up with that? And so, again, Paul's going to explain here, God's word has not failed. Even though most of the Israelites, you know, the majority of them are they're rejecting the Messiah, and so they're not obtaining the promises, uh, that does not make God a liar, or God is not contradicting his promises to them. And now he's going to explain why. And so he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Um, and so let me, let me I'm going to use the first question. Uh, color here. And so the purple here is going to signify God's uh, chosen people. So he says, Israel here, they're not all Israel. They're not all true Israel, I think you could say, um, who are descended from Israel. And so Paul's going to make a contrast here between those who are spiritual Israelites and those who are Israelites just according to the flesh. And so there's a difference. Um, there's a difference between being a, a true Jew, like Paul would say at the beginning of Romans in, uh, I think, maybe chapter 2 or 3. He says a Jew is one who is one inwardly and not just outwardly. So, so Paul here is going to make the case. He's going to defend God's faithfulness and his truthfulness by saying God's word, his promises haven't failed. And this is why. He says because not all, uh, not all Israel who are, are descended from Israel... Um, not all are Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children. Um, so, so they're not true children um, because they are Abraham's descendants. So even though, according to the flesh, they've got Abraham's DNA, according to the flesh, they're Abraham's descendants, but they're not true children of Abraham. There's a, there's a category here between just flesh uh, DNA connected uh, descendants of Abraham and spiritual, true spiritual children of Abraham. So to summarize Paul's argument, what, what it is and what it's going to be, uh, I think it kind of go like this. God's promises have not failed because he never intended his promises for natural Israel. So he never intended it for those who are simply connected to Abraham, who are descendants to Abraham by DNA, by blood. Um, but um, his promises actually are for spiritual Israel. Again, there's the category. There's the, he, he, he made promises to Israel, but when he did that, the mystery was that it wasn't for all natural-born descendants of Abraham, as the argument Paul's going to make, but it's those who are children of Abraham according to the Spirit in Christ. And so God's promises were never intended to apply to all Israel, or every individual descendant of Abraham, or every seeker of righteousness according to the law. So these are all things that this is what the Jews, again, you see at the beginning that what the Jews were bringing to God was, was the, the, their law-keeping. They were, there are those who inherited the promises according to the flesh, the Messiah had come from them. Um, they had the law and the prophets. They were God's chosen people. And so they were bringing all these things that Paul categorizes as fleshly things, as things that were of the flesh that they were bringing, things that had no real spiritual value to God. And they were expecting that, that because they had all these things, 
that that was going to make them right with God. That was going to give them the the end with God, and um, that they were, you know, again, I talked about last time in John, they were so uh, confident that they were God's children, and, and they would say to Jesus things like, "We don't have other fathers. You know, we have one Father, and that's God, and we're children of Abraham." And and uh, and so that that's kind of what's going on here. That's kind of the the attitude that Paul knows about, and that he's preemptively replying to, and so. Again, Paul's argument is going to go like this. God has not promised to all Israel or every individual. He hasn't given his promises to just those uh, sincere, faithful Jews who are keeping the law. But God has a chosen people, again, a spiritual Israel. He has sovereignly determined who are chosen and elect by sovereignly determining how a person becomes chosen and elect. And so that's what Paul is going to explain. This is all, Romans 9 is so much about God's sovereignty. It's absolutely about the complete right and control of God over everything, and he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. The question that's up for argument here is, is, is not whether God is sovereign and does whatever he wants. The question is, yes, God is sovereign, but what is the sovereign choice he has made? What, what, what does this sovereignly look like? How does this sovereignly actually play out in reality? God can do whatever he wants, but again, the argument here is, what does God want? What has he revealed that he wants? And, and we talk, I've talked a lot about the split roads that, that Calvinism would take and that, uh, that I would take and that I believe Paul takes. And so um, the dis- sovereign decision that Calvinists would say Paul is, is arguing for here is that he simply determined before people were born uh, the eternal destinies of every individual. And I would say, no, that's not the choice that Paul's explaining here that God has made in his sovereignty, but that's the sovereign choice God has made instead is a sovereign choice of faith in him and a sovereign rejection of works of the law or any flesh or any human effort. He, he's, he's sovereignly chosen. That will not cut it. That will not do it. I, I reject that. And, and no amount of sincerity can... can uh, it w- will earn or or grant or, or will earn or uh, get my blessing, but instead I've chosen faith. Is what God would say. He's chosen faith, childlike faith. He's chosen the weak thing to shame the strong. Um, he's chosen the foolish thing to shame the wise. And so in, in that in that scripture, you know, the the parallel would be that the weak thing is is faith. The foolish thing is simply belief and trust in God. That's the foolish thing. The strong thing is the Jews. They're bringing their their strength. They're bringing the strength of their DNA connection to Abraham. They're bringing the strength of their their uh, their adherence to the law. You know, like Paul would say. You know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I I kept the law to a T. I, I was uh, flawless in it. And so that 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 is what it looks like to bring the works of the flesh, to bring your own human effort, to bring something to to God to set it on on the table before him and say look what I brought to you um, really I want to talk about this later in more detail but I believe the story of Cain and Abel is a perfect parallel to Romans 9 and the argument that Paul is making you know you've got Abel simply bringing faith you know the 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 analogy of him bringing the lamb was it was the the uh, analogy or the metaphor uh, of faith that what Abel really was bringing to God when he brought him a lamb was trust and dependence. And, and, and that was an act of him saying, you must provide what I cannot. 
when Cain brought to, to the table the first fruits of the ground, the cursed ground, remember God had cursed the ground, and he said, I reject that. The ground then, I believe, was a uh, spiritual picture of the fallenness of man, the fallen state of man, and the inability of man to approach God or get to God. But yet Cain brought from the, from the first fruits of the ground, uh, and, and uh, which I believe is a spiritual analogy of works of the flesh, of human effort, of human uh, self-dependence, self-reliance. And by all human wisdom, Cain should have, you know, he should have gotten God's blessing. But God sovereignly chose to reject that because he sovereign, sovereignly has chosen to reject works of the flesh. He's sovereignly chosen to, to relate to people on the basis of faith. That's why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. So that's kind of a side road uh, from what I was intending to talk about. But I think that's uh, I think there is something there that can help bring clarity to Paul's argument in Romans 9 uh, and the story of Cain and Abel. So um, going back to this, again, Paul's argument is that God has always intended his promises for his chosen people. The promises of God, all the promises he gave to Abraham and to his descendants, uh, which we'll find out later, it's not his descendants, plural, that he promised his promises to. But if you go back in Genesis, it was his descendant, singular, that he promised all things to. And to give the ending away, that descendant who God promised the promises of Abraham to was actually Jesus Christ. He's the one person that God gave all of his promises to. And that's an interesting thing that gives a little bit more clarity on Romans 9 as well, which I'd like to get into a little bit more, in a, uh, hopefully, in, in a further video. So God has always had in mind a group of people who would, there should be a D there, that was a mistake, who would be true Israel and true children of Abraham. And so I believe that's what Paul is getting at here in, in these, these first few verses. He's setting up his argument uh, and he's making, he's setting up his case for, for why the word of God has not failed. And again, his reasoning is simply because God has always had a specific group, his elect people um, in Israel. He's always had a s certain category of people who, who are really true Israel, true children of Abraham, and, and simply being a descendant of Abraham, uh, simply being a descendant of Israel, is, is, it doesn't cut it. That, that is not what God has chosen. And so that's his argument for why God's promises haven't failed. Because if he never originally even made the promises to the physical fleshly descendants of Abraham, then his promises haven't failed because he's still fulfilling those promises for the true children, the true spiritual children of Abraham. Which that obviously leads, leads us to the question of, okay, then who are these true children of Abraham? Who, who, who are they? That's the question that, that comes up from this is who is true Israel? Who are the true children of Abraham? And this is, this is where we, we get to that crossroads of Calvinism and Paul again is, is where I think Calvinism would go the direction of uh, that God's predetermined elect, uh, sovereignly determined by God to be his elect. So the, the true Israel and true children of Abraham, this is who it is. Um, it's, it's that God chose who will, would be his sons, who would be sons of Abraham, and who will be vessels of wrath. God simply chose every person's eternal destination before they were born. His reasons for how and why he chooses his elect are uh, mysterious, and we don't know. They're ambiguous to us. Um, and so, so again, according to Calvinism, the answer to this question is really simple, and it doesn't 
really answer the question because it just leaves more questions. Um, and and uh, so their answer again would be that true Israel, true children of Abraham are those that God has simply selected. He determined before they were born. He chose who would go to heaven, who would go to hell. Um, and so, so again, I, I hope when I say that I'm not coming across as uh, snarky or, or, uh, or anything like that. I'm not trying to be mean. I want to be respectful, but I'm, I just want to accurately, I'm, I'm saying that uh, explaining this in the best way I know how, if you really get to the bottom of it, that's what it comes down to. And so, um, but I believe Paul would go a, a different direction. Um, and the direction he would go would be to ultimately say it's, it's faith in Christ, you know, that causes us to, to be elect is, is what I would say. So it's those with the faith of Abraham. God sovereignly determined that he would relate to people only on the basis of faith and not works. God's sovereign decree is that he will reject even the most devoted law-keeping Jew, even with their Israelite descent according to the flesh. So God's mystery, the mystery for how and why he chooses, has been revealed, is what I'd argue. There's another missed word. I need a Y in there. That mystery is Christ. You know, Colossians will say that, and I believe uh, 1 Corinthians in the second or third chapter, Paul, is he talks about the mystery of Christ. And so I, I guess it's a little confusing to me why God's elect people, there's still such a mystery. It just, there's just, it's a, it doesn't make sense. It's almost as if God the Father had a special relationship with people in eternity past before these people ever had any connection to Christ or any relationship to Christ. Somehow the Father in eternity past had this mysterious relationship and this bonding of himself to these elect people, but that came before these people's connection to Christ. So really their relationship, I, I, I struggle to see how their relationship could be said to have come through Christ. Um, and, and it seems almost in, in Calvinism that uh, their relationship with God came simply by getting to the Father first. And then because God had this mysterious relationship with his elect people, the Father had this mysterious elect people, they ultimately, they uh, eventually came into connection with Christ after their, their, their first relationship, having that relationship and connection to the Father. So I don't know, maybe somebody can explain how that, that works. Um, I don't, I don't, claim to fully understand uh, and, and understand the mind or the, the ideas and the beliefs of um, what, what reformed, uh, my reformed brothers would, would say on that point. But um, I would be interest, interested to hear a reply to that and, and have somebody explain that to me. Um, but I believe Paul, again, he's arguing here that, that the mystery is Christ that the mystery of how and why God chooses people has been revealed and that who he chooses are ultimately he chose Christ and he chooses those in him. He chooses those who come to him by faith. You know, so you might bring up the fact that I, I mean, I can know I could kind of preemptively like Paul is preemptively knowing the arguments and the opposition that will come from the things he's saying. I, I know the opposition that would come to me by the things I'm saying. So, so when I say God has chosen faith, he's chosen those with faith. I know the reply would be, well, how does a person, a fallen, sinful, uh, unregenerate person have faith? And so, you know, I, I would love to talk about that, and, and I plan on making a lot of videos about that topic. But the point here I'd like to make is that Paul doesn't even bring that up. That's not even up for contention here, uh, whether or not a person can have faith. That's not the point here. The point is simply that, uh, that God has chosen faith. 
whether or not a person can can exercise faith in God before being regenerated, that's not on the table at this point. So let's just, I hope we can just stay on track and, and, and just focus in on the thing that Paul is focusing in on. So here I want to compare uh, Romans 9, 6 through 8, some of the verses that we're focused on in, in this video, compare them to, uh, mainly to Galatians, but there's also one in Romans I want to look at. So again, reading Romans 9, 6 through 8, Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Um, so Romans 4.16, let's see what that says. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So again, we're trying to answer the question, uh, who, who are Abraham's uh, descendants? According to Paul, he's making the argument that the reason, the reason God's promises haven't failed is because God made the promises originally to true children of Abraham, not to just simply fleshly, uh, natural descendants of Israel or Abraham. So now we're answering the question, biblically, who those are. Here we see that uh, those who are of the faith of Abraham, um, that those are the ones who uh, the promise will be guaranteed to. So let's connect that. So descendants of Abraham are those with faith, according to Romans 4.16. It's, it's about faith. So Galatians 3.7, let's see what that one says. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We can connect that one too. So it is those of faith. So again, we're answering the question, who, if the promises were originally made to Abraham's descendants, who are they? Let's, again, we're just looking at what the Bible says. According to Galatians 3.7 and Romans 4.16 so far, it's those of faith. Those who have faith, the faith of Abraham, those are the children of Abraham. And again, Galatians 3.7, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture for seeing, going on in verse 8 of, of Galatians 3, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the, gen the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, again, he's going to repeat it, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are Abraham's children? Who are, who are the true children of Abraham? According to Romans 4.16 and Galatians 3.7. Right now, we see nothing... There, there's just no mention, there's no reason to, to, to lead us to the conclusions of a um, Calvinistic predeterminism, uh, an individual selection of, of individuals before they were born in their eternal destinies. Um, now, again, I would say maybe, I'll grant, maybe that's somewhere else in the Bible, but so far we're not seeing that. You know, If we just compare Romans 9, 6 through 8 to other scriptures, there's no reason to conclude that so far. Galatians 3.29 is another verse that I want to compare real quick in answering this question. Uh, if you are Christ, it says, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So the condition that, that, that makes us children of Abraham is that first we're, we're Christ. And how do we become Christ? How do we become connected to Christ? What connects us to him? Well, it's faith. 
we, we become baptized into Christ through faith. And so, again, I think that's, that's just saying the same thing as, as these other verses, that, uh, that we become sons, we're the sons of Abraham by faith. And so we can, we can go and connect that one too. That Abraham's descendants, the true children of Abraham, those who are truly Israel, that Paul's trying to explain, are those who have faith. It's those who have the, the faith of Abraham. It comes by faith. So continuing on, uh, finishing up this section in Romans 9, it, Paul says, Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. It is through Isaac. And so this is, Paul is making a spiritual analogy here when he says this. This is really significant and really will help us to understand what is he trying to get at here when he's, when he's saying God made, a prom, made his promises originally not to fleshly descendants of Abraham, but to spiritual children of Abraham. And then answer, he's trying to answer the question of who these are, who has God chosen that they be. When he brings this up, that it's through Isaac your descendants will be, will be named. This is very significant when we compare it to Galatians, which is what I want to do, um, and, and see the, the way that Paul uses this spiritual analogy, the spiritual metaphor in Galatians. I think, again, it's really revealing. So he says, it's through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh, so make this distinction again, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise. These are the ones God has chosen to give his, his uh, promises to. So again, we know, we know clearly what this reveals is that God is sovereign and he has a sovereign people that he, he has chosen who will get his promises. He makes a decision what, who will get them, what kind of people, who they are. And, and so the question then becomes, okay, who are they? Who has God ch- chosen? How does he choose people? Why does he choose who he chooses? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? So let's, let's first look at this, focus in on through Isaac when he says that. Um, in, in verse 7. So to do that, let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 29. I'm just going to read this section, and, and then we'll go, well, after I read it, we'll go back through. But just listen to what what Paul says. Remember that this uh, Galatians, it, it, the whole point is a, that the topic is Paul making a case for faith uh, versus works, right? Faith versus works of the law. And the Galatians were reverting to works. And Paul was making the case, trying to convince them to not do that, but to remain, to continue approaching God on the basis of faith and don't revert to works. So Galatians 4, 22 through 29, let's see what Paul says. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman and here's this word that's going to come up, was born according to the flesh. But the son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. This is very significant when trying to interpret Paul's point in Romans 9. So if you're going to focus on anything I'm saying, focus in on this. These things are being taken figuratively, when he brings up 
Isaac. That's what he's doing right here. He's bringing up the story of Abraham. God promised Abraham a son. And, and what Abraham and, and Sarah did is eventually they said, okay, God's not doing it. He's not getting it done. Let's do it for him. So what did they do? They went out, they got Hagar, the, the Egyptian slave woman. Abraham uh, slept with her, had Ishmael. That was the child born according to the flesh. Here, Paul says these things are to be taken figuratively. It's an, it's, there's a spiritual analogy. There's a spiritual uh, metaphor, if you will, that that uh, that that is coming out of the story of Abraham and and uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And so he says these things are be, to be taken figuratively. The women uh, represent two covenants. Uh, one covenant is from Mount Sinai. So just to distinguish these, there's two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? The law, right? The law came. So this one is a represent, representation in Galatians. What Paul is doing is saying, look, the, the slave woman represent, is from Mount Sinai. It represents the law, right? Represents trying to come to God on the basis of your own works. That's what Paul's trying to get at in Galatians. And bears children who are to be slaves. So in Galatians, what he's making the case for is, look, if you go back to trying to work your way to God, you're just going back to Mount Sinai. You're going back to the law. You're going back to slavery. And that's the woman, That's what Hagar represents. That's what Ishmael represents, is works of the flesh. That's his point in Galatians. This is Hagar, he says. Hagar is, in this analogy, Hagar is the law. Hagar is the flesh. Hagar is the Galatians trying to approach God on the basis of their works. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, let's switch the colors here, the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, like Isaac, there's Isaac, connect that back to Romans 9, through Isaac, Paul said in Romans 9, your descendants will be, will be made. Here Paul's saying through Isaac, or like Isaac, you, brothers and sisters, are children of promise. There's both of them in Galatians. And Paul says the people who, in Romans 9, the people who get God's promises, the people who God has chosen, who are they? It's the people who come through Isaac, and it's the people who are the children of the promise. These things both, like Paul says, are to be taken figuratively. They're spiritual analogies. So who are these that come through Isaac? Who are the children of promise? Here Galatians is explaining it. Um, it, it's, it's those who are of faith, who remain in faith, who approach God on the basis of, of faith and not works. Um, that's Paul's point. That's his argument in Galatians. So when he uses those same analogies in Romans, I think it's fair and legitimate to say that that's the same way he's using these analogies. Is he saying, he's, saying, he's contrasting faith and works here. He's not contrasting God's uh, unconditionally elected and unconditionally reprobated people, but he's contrasting those of the, with the faith of Abraham and those who, who approach God on the basis of works. So he says, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son 
born by the power of the Spirit, it is the same now. So we are children of promise. Who are children of promise? Well, children of promise are those with the faith of Abraham who, who you know, in Abraham's seasons of waiting and trusting in God's promises, ultimately that's what he did, is he believed, God promised, I will give you a son. You know, the flesh is that, that picture of Abraham and, and Sarah saying, God's not moving fast enough. Let's get out there. Let's get this accomplished for ourselves. That's the flesh. That's what Israel was doing in Romans 9 when they're, they're trying to approach God on the basis of their own works. They're trying to get done for God what God has done for us in Christ. And, and uh, they're trying to approach God on the basis of their works. And so, so children of promise, though, are those who, who are represented by Abraham and Sarah in their moments of faithfully and patiently waiting. Um, in Hebrews 11, you know, God remembers them only for their faith and not their, their failure and their unbelief, which just shows the mercy and love of God. But, but children of promise are those who, like Abraham, depend on God by faith, who, who don't revert, who don't approach, try to approach God by their own works, works of the flesh, their own energy, uh, bringing to, to God their own human wisdom and, and, and trying to earn their way to God. Children of promise are those who have childlike faith, who say, I can't do it. They're the poor in spirit. They're the weak. They're those who, who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are insufficient in themselves and recognize that. And they come to God and say, uh, they come to God and say, you must do for me what I can't do for myself. And they trust his promise. They trust his promise of provision that ultimately has been fulfilled in Christ. Abraham was trusting God's provision and ultimately, that was a preaching of the gospel. Uh, when God said, I will do for you, Abraham, what you cannot do for yourself, that was a foreshadowing of the gospel where, where ultimately God, God did that by providing his son, and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So to be a child of promise, in this, in this context, according to Paul's argument, uh, and what we see in Galatians, the usage of these spiritual analogies of Isaac and Ishmael, um, and, and what it means to be a child of promise, it has nothing to do with a predetermined selection of individuals to either salvation or, or wrath. Again, I would say there's more in Romans 9, so, so let's keep, we'll keep going in further videos. But as far as these verses so far, we don't see that. What we see is Paul making an argument for God's sovereign choice of faith over works. I totally understand what Paul or what Peter means when he says some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and you can see that. But when you start to understand, man, Paul's making the same, you know, he's, he's got kind of a one-track mind of he preaches faith in Christ, faith in Jesus. Don't try to work your way to him. It's all grace. Uh, that's the message. That's, the, that's really what Paul is constantly getting at. And Romans 9 is no different. And so when I, when I started to see that, it was, it was just a huge eye-opener. And so hopefully you can, you can if you don't you know, fully believe what I'm saying or think that it's totally accurate, at least you can maybe see that there is an alternative perspective that I think holds a lot of weight, especially when you compare it to places like Galatians, where obviously Paul's argument in Galatians, there's 
just no debate. His argument in Galatians, his point, his case is to say, God has chosen faith. He's rejected works. Do not go back to works or you will be cut off from Christ. Then you see in Romans 9, Paul saying the Jews are cut off from Christ because they're pursuing righteousness by the law and, uh, and they're offended at that. And so he tries to explain, well, look, guys, all along God has chosen faith is the way through which you enter into relationship with him. He's never, he's always rejected works. If you actually look at, at the, the Bible, if you actually look at the Old Testament, you look at what he said to Abraham, that, that Abraham's uh, faith was accounted to him, credited to him as righteousness. So, so um, the conclusion, I would say, tr uh, true Israel are those who seek God and, and righteousness by faith and not works. God is sovereignly determined to only give the promises of Abraham to those with the faith of Abraham. Paul's point in Romans 9 is to explain that the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith through him has always been the way that he grants people his precious promises and enters into covenant relationship with them. Paul is preemptively replying to the offended Jew who is seeking righteousness on the basis of the law. Paul knows that those Jews who are the descendants of Abraham and are keeping the law will be greatly shocked and offended to hear that God is now rejecting them and granting his blessings to the Gentiles. Romans 9 is Paul's explanation and defense of the gospel of Jesus. His point is to reply to these offended Jews by showing them that God has always chosen what he wants, how he wants, and when he wants, and that in this case, what he has chosen is to save people on the basis of faith and to reject works, no matter how sincere, devoted, or legitimate those works may be. So that, I believe, is, is in these verses that we've read so far, that's uh, my best understanding, uh, what I believe is the most biblical uh, in my weak way of presenting it. Obviously, I think that's a biblical way of looking at these first uh, eight verses of Romans 9. So yeah, I hope that I've presented this in a way that's loving and, and uh, gentle and respectful, and that's that's really my goal. I know that if I'm I'm I'm, I'm striving to to not be uh, uh, sarcastic or mean or rude or offensive in the way I present this, the way I talk about Calvinism or Reformed theology. That's not my goal. Um, I know that uh, you know I have Reformed brothers who, um, you know, like like James says, he, he specifically says about teachers that we all in the Epistle of James we all stumble in many points, and so I know I'm not free of that. I'm not free of stumbling. And I know I, I probably have many blind spots in theology where I can't see. And I would need another brother to come alongside me and say, hey, look, there is a you know, there is a better way to understand these scriptures. And so that's all I want to do here. And so I, I, again, I hope I'm doing that in a way that is humble and gentle and loving and not offensive or rude. Uh, my heart is to protect, you know, the, the sheep that might listen to this and help encourage them to to know that there is a better uh, understanding of these scriptures that presents a more accurate, accurate view of our loving Heavenly Father, our God, who is sovereign, but He has revealed to us what His sovereignty looks like. And I, I, I do believe Calvinism presents a view of God's sovereignty, which ultimately per, uh, uh, concludes us to a, a view of God's character that is uh, distorted and flawed and not accurate. 
and, and, and obviously that can lead to issues in a person's heart that can lead to issues in a person's walk, like, like any, any wrong ideas about God. I know we all are in a process of God sanctifying us, which includes him renewing our minds about the true knowledge of who he is. So, so we shouldn't be discouraged or, or feel condemned or guilty when we do get things wrong about God, because we're all in a process. We're all weak. We're, God knows that we're just dust. He knows that we're just men. And so, so he's okay with us not fully understanding him and getting things wrong. But, uh, but I think that, that it can't, it is a big deal, you know, especially when there are prominent teachers teaching these things. And so, so, um, my hope is just to present again, to present another view and hope to encourage somebody with this. So, um, I hope you were blessed by this video and, and we'll be continuing through Romans nine, um, making our way through it in further videos. Mm -hmm.